The Bob Murphy Show, episode 206. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, I'm going to be doing the third and final installment of the series, What Did Bob Learn? to round out the evolution in my thought, focusing largely on economic issues, but also some other stuff too. Now, let me just mention, in case the sound is a little bit funny, I am in the cell phone waiting lot at an airport, waiting for my son to land. And so I'm sitting here and I thought, you know what? Instead of just listening to the radio, why don't I go ahead and knock out an episode? So presumably the people around here are looking at me they probably think I'm a DJ. Dropping three notches to number seven, that was Jewel with. Okay, so why don't we jump into this here? I'll try to go more quickly through these topics. So one thing that I changed my views on a little bit, you might say this is more just a, a refinement, when it comes to the economics of climate change. So Rob Bradley was the guy who got me into this stuff when he hired me for the Institute for Energy Research, or IER, years ago. And he told me that, hey, Bob, this climate change stuff is going to be huge. You really want to become an expert on it. And that was very good advice that Rob gave me. And so when I first went into it, I sort of assumed that, quote, the science really did say what the media were telling us it said. And that if you wanted to, you know, make a case for why the government shouldn't do X, Y, and Z in the name of slowing climate change, it would have to be just, you know, on principled reasons that, hey, hey, you know, I just don't believe in coercion from political authorities as a point of morality. And so therefore everything should be voluntary, blah, blah, blah. Or I thought, because I had seen some some stuff on this before I really was assigned the beat as it were, I thought, well, you know, I know there's certain rogue scientists out there and they dispute what their colleagues think and you know, so I, that's kind of what I thought going into it. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that, okay, yes, it's not that the physical science of climate change is a hoax. It's not something that Al Gore just made up. But on the other hand, when it comes to the economics of it, when it comes to saying, oh, because of these trends in whatever, sea level rise or rising temperatures or what, what have you, the other particular things, you know, what's going on with drought and what's going on with forest fires and whatnot. Therefore, governments ought to do, you know, put a carbon tax in place in this much, or we should slow emissions by this amount, cut emissions by this percentage, by this year, those sorts of things. The various targets that were put in place, you know, the Kyoto Protocol, Paris Climate Agreement, all those sorts of things that stuff does not follow at all. So it's not that you have to be some weirdo Austrian or that you have to get your climate data from the Heritage Foundation website. No, not at all. A lot of the stuff that I would do for IER, the Institute for Energy Research, was just going 
to the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that's the UN's body that they created to periodically summarize and distill the peer-reviewed research, both in the natural physical sciences and in the, you know, the economics of climate change literature to guide policymakers in the public to just kind of show them, hey, this is what the state of the art of climate change science is and research. And I'm telling you, you would be shocked. I was shocked when I first got into it just to see how much everybody was bluffing when they were saying, oh, no, you got to follow the science. Don't be a denier. And so, you know, in my career with IER over the years, I ended up just flipping that on its head. And I would just throw that back at them. And I would just joke. I literally today, I've, I've moved on from IER. I just had too much stuff going on when my second son was going to be born. And I, I had to step down from that role because I couldn't just keep doing everything, keep all those balls in the air. But somebody that I used to work with at IER had sent me something from, you know, some paper on, oh my gosh, we got to do this and this. Otherwise, by 2050, global GDP is going to drop 18%. And I just wrote back saying, huh, looks like this guy's a science denier because, I mean, that's that's not even close. That you, you'd have to really exaggerate and go to the outlier studies to say by 2100, global GDP would be down 18% if governments, quote, do nothing about climate change. So anyway, just to give you a taste, and I have a, a paper coming out from the Fraser Institute with Ross McKittrick. Um, if you know um, he and McIntyre, debunked the so-called hockey stick statistically years ago. So that's Ross McKittrick's claim to fame. He's an economist. Um, so he and I have a thing coming out where we go through and show just how absurd it is for the UN to be pushing this 1.5 degrees Celsius ceiling on cumulative global warming. If you want to at all pretend that the literature justifies that. So just to give you a quick sample of some of the points we make, William Nordhaus won the Nobel Prize in 2018, I believe, for uh, his pioneering work on the economics of climate change. He came up with what's called the DICE model and um, was one, he was one of the first ones to just start working on models that would incorporate, generally speaking, what the natural physical scientists were saying about climate change and putting it into an economic framework to be able to come up with trade-offs, right? So to his credit, Nordhaus from the get-go was acknowledging there is a trade-off. It's not just that we can slam the brakes on carbon dioxide emissions and, oh, because that will spawn green energy and blah, 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 and then we'll have to retrofit all the buildings, look at all the jobs they'll create, you know, like AOC or people like that try to claim that, you know, not only is revamping our economy in light of the threat of climate change is going to be good for the environment, but it's going to help our economy. No, that's crazy. If that were true, then every three years, we should just completely revamp our economy on the basis of some imaginary threat. And then, you know, we'll have unending prosperity if, if those arguments were correct, right? That's crazy. That's not true at all. So to his credit, Nordhaus from the get-go, as I say, couched his arguments in terms of there being trade-offs in his book, I think that came out in 2008, was called A Question of Balance. All right, so anyway... Nordhaus was a pioneer in this stuff. His protege was actually Paul Krugman, one of his, uh, I think he was literally a TA or something. But anyway, um, Nordhaus in 2018 wins the Nobel Prize for his work on climate change economics. And the same weekend that Nordhaus is announced as the, he was a co-recipient, the UN IPCC published a special report on 
global warming of 1.5 C or something like that, where, you know, the report was guiding policymakers and the public on, hey, you know, we've now coalesced around really trying to limit total global warming, it's relative to pre-industrial ages, um, by 1.5 C. And the media, you know, since those two things came out in the same weekend, the media treated them as complementary, right? You would, that would be totally natural to assume as just a regular member of the public trusting CNN or the New York Times for your news. It would make sense that, oh, the Nobel Memorial Prize awards William Nordhaus the award for his work on climate change. And the UN comes out with this document telling people these are various techniques for how we might limit global warming to 1.5 C. You probably think Nordhaus's work would support that, wouldn't you? And if you've read the interview with him, Nordhaus didn't go out of his way to disabuse you of that notion. And in one interview, somebody asked him, you know, is, can, can we, is there still a chance that we're going to get the 1.5 C target? And he just said something like, well, at this point, no, I, I think maybe it, it's, it, we're too far gone or something like that. But what he should have said is, and thank goodness, because the 1.5 C target is insane. So specifically, Nordhaus's model shows that if they had a, quote, optimal carbon tax, then by the year 2100, the earth would warm 3.5 C. All right, so two full degrees warmer than, you know, what the activists are pushing for. And I, you're listening to that, you might think, well, who cares? That's not the big, for one thing, it's Celsius, so that's bigger than a Fahrenheit degree. But also in this literature, in this debate, that is humongous, right? That the activists are claiming just to allow 2C of warming instead of 1.5C would be catastrophic. So you can imagine allowing 3.5C of warming to them is just, you know, oh my gosh, you might as well let Donald Trump run the world. All right, so that's what Nordhaus's model shows would happen under a so-called optimal globally enforced carbon tax. Moreover, his model showed in the 2016 calibration with the numbers that um, even allowing, just trying to limit the world to 2C of warming would be worse than doing nothing, right? So in other words, remember Nordhaus, his work to his credit stresses the trade-offs. So yeah, you can, governments can do things like enact a carbon tax that will reduce carbon dioxide emissions, that will reduce the amount of global warming that occurs and, and will hence mitigate the amount of climate change damages that humanity endures over the coming centuries. But the downside is by forcing business to use less carbon intensive forms of energy and so forth, you know, forcing consumers to buy products that they otherwise wouldn't have, we have slower economic growth, right? It, just, you know, just thinking it through, if you're forcing consumers and businesses to do something other than what they would have done in the absence of these climate change considerations, then necessarily we're going to be worse off. It, in other words, it would be better for humanity if climate change weren't a thing. Can we all agree on that? And so that necessarily means if we take steps then to reduce how much climate change would otherwise occur if governments were to do nothing about it, then obviously there must be some drawback. There must be some cost to that. All right. So again, what Nordhaus showed was going after even just limiting total warming by the year 2100 to two degrees Celsius would be so draconian that the, the cost of doing that would be so much higher than the benefits in the form of avoided climate change damage that it would be better if governments did nothing rather than pursue that target. 
he didn't even bother including in his analysis what would happen if governments instead tried to ratchet down so much that the globe only warmed 1.5 degrees Celsius. Okay, so that's just one example of the kind of thing I mean, where it's not like, oh, Nordhaus thinks there's an, a better policy. No, he's saying that would be so dumb. That would be such a boneheaded policy, would be so destructive. It would be better if governments did nothing at all about climate change rather than try to pursue a 2C ceiling, let alone a 1.5C ceiling. All right, so that's just one example of the kind of thing I mean. And needless to say, that didn't come out in the New York Times coverage of Nordhaus winning the Nobel Prize. Um, let's see, is there anything, uh, another example of what, I mean, this is a little bit technical, but there's this thing called the tax interaction effect. And when I first got into this stuff, one of the main arguments that people were making, and it wasn't just on the left, it was also people on the right, like Arthur Laffer embraced this idea early on because he realized, well, the left is, the Democrats are really pushing for a carbon tax. You know, they want to do something about climate change. The right is basically being cast as science deniers. And there's, you know, early, in the early years when Al Gore first came out with this stuff, the right was basically just, you know, oh, well, we don't know. There's so many uncertainties. And, da, 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 and that was a very uh, difficult position rhetorically to hold. And so people like Arthur Laffer and some others, you know, associated with the Republicans said, hey, let's just cut a deal. Let's tell the Democrats, sure, you want a carbon tax, go ahead. But it's not going to be a net tax increase. If we're doing this not to raise revenue for the government, but if we're doing it, we'll take you at your word that it's to save the planet. Okay. But then dollar for dollar, any money that this new carbon tax raises, we have to use to reduce other taxes like income taxes, you know, especially like a corporate income tax or, you know, push comes to shove a payroll tax or whatever, or geez, let's even give lump sum rebates. But for sure, this cannot be a net tax hike. We have to refund that money or recycle that money back to the private sector and ideally, in the view of Arthur Laffer, not just in the form of handing money over as a lump sum rebate, but why don't we go ahead and reduce tax rates on other activities to, you know, get a supply side stimulus, okay? So, and then there was this thing in the literature called the tax interaction effect. And so when I first got into this stuff, I saw people, so to be clear, I'm not talking about Laffer here, I'm talking about other people I was reading, who would cite some earlier literature on this and said, matter-of-factly, oh, yes, and this shows that, we, you know, we could get a, what they call a double dividend, that if you um, levied a tax on carbon, not only would that be good because it would spare global warming, you know, it would mitigate global warming and reduce climate change damages, so it's good on that front, but if you use the revenue to reduce other taxes, then the economy might even grow more than it would have in the original scenario. And so, you know, it's a win-win. So what was funny is when I went and followed those citations to the earlier literature, it said the exact opposite, right? If you went and read, read some of the classic uh, pioneering articles on this topic of the so-called tax interaction effect, they said that no, um, what happens is because, this gets technical, I'll just say it, and if you don't get it, don't worry about it. <laughs> I'll put links in the show notes page if you want to go try to read more on this. And just to warn you, this is, it's a subtle point. I spent a while even trying to get other free market economists who were in the climate change debate to get this point. Like, they were emailing me privately and saying, Bob, I realize this is important, but you got to walk me through this. What are you talking about? I don't get it. So, this is a subtle point. Um, but basically what these original papers were saying is if you have 
a regular economy with no distortionary taxes and you have a negative externality like pollution or something, then yep, the textbook says, oh, the government should levy a tax on that negative externality that's directly proportional to the amount of harm that it causes. And then that, you know, restores Pareto optimality. That gets people, they internalize the externalities and they do the appropriate thing. And then the government gives a lump sum rebate and that's how you avoid a deadweight loss, blah, blah, blah. Right, so that's standard stuff. Now you would think, oh, so if there's already a pre-existing distortionary tax, like a tax on labor or a tax on capital income, you would think then if anything, if they're going to use the money, not just to send lump sum rebates to taxpayers, but if they're going to use the incoming revenue from this tax on the negative externality, like on pollution or whatever, to reduce the tax rate on the stuff that's good, right? Like working or saving, because that's what taxes on labor income or capital income are. Well, then if anything, you should, that should be more advantageous, right? Like if anything, you would want to levy a a slightly bigger tax on on the pollution because you're, you know, getting more bang for your buck, right? And it turns out that in general, no, that argument, it's actually backwards. And it's a, it's a subtle thing, but it's because when you have that original distortionary tax on like working or saving taxes on wage income or, you know, dividends, interest, things like that. Um, then when you levy the tax on the pollution, that interacts, the two taxes interact. That's why it's called the tax interaction effect. And it makes the original distortionary tax more distortionary, okay? So it's not so much that the tax on the pollution is bad per se, right, in this framework. No, that's a good thing. But the original distortionary tax becomes more distortionary when you throw in the tax on the pollution, all right? And believe me, I've been trying for years to come up with an intuitive way to get that across. And I'm so far, I haven't done it. Steve Landsberg and I once were working on a paper to try to build like a sim- the simplest possible model to illustrate this. And we, we haven't done it yet. Before we die, we will. Okay. But my point being though, just to step back is what I found is people were bluffing in this literature. They were saying, oh yeah, and then this works the one way. And they even cited this earlier work And I went back and read these papers and saw, no, it literally said the exact opposite. It said, in general, if you already have a pre-existing distortionary tax code, then that that should make you less eager to levy taxes on negative externalities, even if you're using the money dollar for dollar to reduce those distortionary taxes. All right. So it's, to be clear, I'll say one more thing on this and I'll move on. Given that you were going to tax carbon dioxide emissions, yes, it's more efficient. It's better for GDP growth if you use the money that comes in from that in order to reduce the corporate income tax or in order to reduce, you know, the personal income tax or the payroll tax rather than have the government spend it on whatever battery research or something. So that's true. But that's not the same thing as saying it would be better for GDP growth if the government levied a tax on carbon dioxide emissions and then use that money to lower income taxes versus just not levying the carbon dioxide tax in the first place and leaving the income tax the way it was. Okay. And so that's what people were getting mixed up on. They were sort of taking the carbon tax as a given and then saying we should use the money to reduce other taxes and that promotes efficiency. Yes, that's true. But the right-wingers who wanted to cut a deal with the left, they were saying, some of them were saying stuff like, 
hey, even if Al Gore is wrong, doesn't matter, we'll still get better GDP. And I'm saying, no, that's not right. Or at least in the peer-reviewed literature under normal assumptions, that's not right. So yeah, with all this stuff, there was another wave of literature and people came up with, well, what if we make these assumptions? In that case, there would be a double dividend. So yeah, that always happens in these theoretical models. But I'm saying the original research on the so-called tax interaction effect actually said the other thing, said it the other way around. That if you more realistically have a, a, a country where there's already a pre-existing distortionary tax code, then levying a Pagovian tax on a negative externality, even if you use the revenue to reduce the other taxes, um, still ends up hurting the economy. And so that's a reason you wouldn't do it as aggressively. So in other words, you would levy a Pagovian tax that was less than what the negative externality was relative to a case where there was, you know, a perfectly efficient tax code in the, in the beginning. All right. So what I learned big picture from this stuff is that the environmental alarmists were bluffing. And when they were beating people over the head by saying, follow the science, look at the peer reviewed research, they were bluffing. No, they, they quickly walked away from that stuff. And they even, it was interesting to watch how the debate unfolded over the years that once they realized that people like me and other people, you know, came in and started like actually reading the stuff and saying, no, actually the IPCC summaries don't support what you're saying. Then they shifted to, oh, well, these things are necessarily a few years out of date. And it's the cutting edge research have shown that, you know what I mean? So it was, it, it turned from go look at the research you Neanderthals to, oh, well, you can't trust the research because anything that's in print right now is necessarily older. And we all know that the situation is far worse than what, you know, the stuff summarized five years ago in the literature says. Okay, so the next topic I'll discuss on an issue where I've changed my thinking somewhat dramatically is the issue of fractional reserve banking. So this, it's hard for me to remember exactly what my mindset was before, but definitely I remember I agreed with the Selgin and White position, you know, the, the free banker position, namely that, hey, in a free market, you can let banks set whatever reserve ratio they want. And that's just a market outcome, sort of like, uh, you know, hey, how many fire, well, not how many fire extinguishers. Well, technically, yeah, that, that, maybe that is a good idea. I was going to say how many fire extinguishers should a store have on site. And at first I thought, well, that's just not a mere matter of preference by the owner that the insurance companies would be involved. But likewise with the banks, it's not just, hey, whatever the owners of the banks feel like in terms of, hey, do they want to wear a purple tie to work that day? But the reserve ratio would be determined endogenously by market forces and things like that, profit maximizing considerations. But nonetheless, I thought that was just going to be a market outcome. Um, and I probably liked the analogy of if somebody owned a private parking garage and you sold monthly passes for people to be able to park there. And if you just knew in practice that, you know, people go out of town and this and that, and even at, at night, like some people just stay out or they're like staying over someone else's place or whatever, their cars in the shop and that... If, if it just turned out that you could safely over issue, quote, guaranteed slots and know that, you know, you probably weren't going to get caught that, you know, you could sell 1100 parking spots, even though your garage only holds a thousand cars and that the chance of it literally being full 
and people who thought they were paying for a guaranteed slot then getting turned away because it's full is pretty low, then, you know, you, you could see that. And of course, the, the contracts would, would specify all that. So it wouldn't literally be guaranteed in the sense that, you know, we're breaking the law. I would just say in the event that you pay for this thing and then you go and try to get in there and there's no slot for you, well, then this is what happens. And people would know that ahead of time. Because you can see it would be wasteful if all the parking lots across the country had unused slots for most of the time, right? Like you, you, you don't want to leave them idle. And so that, so I think I probably had reasoning like that. And, you know, that's an analogy that's often used in this debate. And I probably found that compelling back like, let's say when I was in grad school. And the other thing too is when you read, so Selgin and White have a paper called In Defense of Fiduciary Media, we're Misesians or something like that. Obviously, folks, I'll link to all this stuff at the show notes page, bobmurphy.com or sorry, bobmurphyshow.com slash 206 um, to get all these readings. But in that one too, they made some critiques of, I think it was like Hoppe and his position on what constitutes saving. Like if you add to your cash balances, does that count as saving? And, and I happen to agree with them economically on that particular point. And so it just, I felt like, oh yeah, Selgin and White have the upper hand in this debate against the 100% reservists. And also it wasn't clear to me like we're the 100% reservists saying the state in our world today ought to be enforcing 100% reserves as a matter of law, you know, given that the state is going to be enforcing laws against murder and stuff, should it also prosecute bankers if they get caught with only 97% backing of checking accounts, right? Okay, so that's where I was coming from then. Since then, I have drastically moved. So for one thing is I debated George Selgin at the Soho Forum on this, um, and somehow I lost that debate in the way that they quantify things. And i I still have my, uh, folks recounting the ballots. Um, we're looking at statistical anomalies. It seemed like early that morning that the, t- the totals for Selgin spiked. And we think it has something to do with the, uh, the vote counting machines. I'm, I'm kidding folks. I'm making references to the election. Um, so here's what, what the main change was instead of worrying about whether it's fraudulent or not, because that ended up absorbing a lot of the standard debate. And so back when I was on the side of the Selgin and White camp, I was saying, oh, this isn't fraud. Everybody knows what's going on. This is goofy. They claim that it's fraud. And so now um, it was largely due to Joe Salerno reading his stuff and then talking with him about it. It's what I am very confident of is that standard Misesian business cycle theory, or what's now called Austrian business cycle theory, what Mises called the um, circulation credit theory of the trade cycle. In that framework, what causes the boom-bust cycle in market economies is the issuance of fiduciary media. It is uh, banks providing credit for which prior savings have not yet occurred. And that's why the interest rates are artificially low, because it's due to credit expansion. It's due to inflation, monetary inflation that works through the bank sector. So the very act of granting new loans that are not fully backed by hard money, or even in a fiat context that are not backed by money in the narrower sense, the banks are expanding the money supply. And if that new money enters the economy through the loan channel, which is what happens if, you know, banks create new money and lend it into the economy, as it were, that's how it gets in. 
then that causes the Misesian boom-bust cycle. And what's interesting is you say, well, why do you say that, Bob? Well, because the person who created that theory, namely Ludwig von Mises, is absolutely 100% crystal clear on that particular point that fiduciary media per se having checking account balances being backed less than 100%, that per se causes the business cycle, not, oh, under certain conditions or not if it's subsidized by the government or something, but in a free market, if it's a 62% reserve ratio that's determined by market forces, then it's fine. No, that's, that's not what Mises says. He is crystal clear on this one point. And, it's, and once you see that, you see how consistent he is, right? Because I, there was a point when I was in, in this debate and I was reading both sides and I thought Mises was just inconsistent. And I, and I thought they, that both sides understandably thought Mises was, was on their side on the debate and that the problem was he was just unclear or, his, or I thought maybe his position had morphed over the years. But on that one particular claim, he, his position didn't move at all. And then I would even go further and say, once you see that and you say, oh, and you understand what he's saying, then some of his other statements, for example, in human action, Mises says, you know, something I'm paraphrasing, something like free enterprise in banking should never have been abandoned, just like, you know, free enterprise should be used for restaurants or something. And again, that's not what he said, but he, he said they never should have abandoned the idea of letting free enterprise work when it comes to banking. And so the free bankers say, oh, see, he's with us. And that's fine. And that's actually my position too. But if you read him elsewhere, even in human action, I believe, but it's crystal clear elsewhere, what Mises is saying is he advocates free banking, meaning let, don't have the government go in and try to enforce reserve ratios, just let the standard law of contracts work and don't have a central bank, blah, blah, blah. Because he thought in practice, that was the best way to keep the banks close to 100% reserves, right? Because he thought that that would be the normal market outcome. And it was actually the, like the central bank acting as a lender of last resort. I mean, just think through what that means. Other things equal, if you've got this big institution standing in the wings, waiting to come in and lend you money, if you ever have uh, a liquidity problem, well, then you don't need to worry as much about keeping money in the vault, do you? Because you have a lender of last resort sitting there in the wings waiting to bail you out. So just that's just one example of what I mean, that Mises thought in, the, in a genuine market outcome where banks are just subject to market forces, they would have higher reserve ratios than if the government came in and uh, tried to enforce it. Now, elsewhere though, so you say, oh, so Mises wasn't in favor of government-backed 100% reserves. No, he in many places did come out and say that. So if you want to talk about him being inconsistent, it might be that, oh, some places it looks like he's calling for the government to mandate 100% reserves and other places it looks like he's not calling for the government to mandate. But where he is throughout his career, and I have never seen a passage to the contrary, is Mises saying, if banks issue fiduciary media, that sets in motion an unsustainable boom, which then must lead to a crash. Now, he says, if it were just a pure market outcome and it, had, it would just be a piddly little thing, right? Because he thinks the banks would have close to 100% reserves in a market outcome. And so it wouldn't be a big deal. It wouldn't like we'd have these major boom bust cycles that would lead people to wonder if the market economy is inherently unstable. But he's still saying the mechanism he elaborated happens because of fractional reserve banking per se. So let me just, there was a great, um, let me just say one other thing before I forget. So the free banker camp, particularly Larry White, Selgin, Selgin to his credit, when I was debating with him, not necessarily like at, at, at the Soho Forum, but I mean like, 
you know, online and whatever. He, I think, is fine to say, yeah, Mises does agree with you, Bob, and you brought, you're both wrong, right? So Selgin doesn't really care one way or the other. Whereas Larry White, I think, is more adamant in saying, no, Mises is with us on this one. I mean, with all this stuff, we're not saying Mises is God. Like, he could be wrong just because he thinks something. But I'm just saying, since we're arguing about everything anyway, we argue about that point. And I think Selgin is more willing to say, yeah, Mises agrees with you guys on this, you and Salerno, Bob, and, and he's just wrong, just like you and Salerno are wrong. Whereas White tries to produce quotations like from the theory of money and credit and other places to say, see, Mises doesn't think that fractional reserve banking per se caused the business. And I have never been convinced by any of those. All right, one, like I said, once you see what the claim is that like guys like Salerno now me are making, and then you go through and read it, Mises is crystal clear. There's not any ambiguity at all in terms of what his position is. And he stays the same over the decades from 1912, you know, up through human action, then through other stuff he wrote in the 50s. So there's, Mises doesn't move. And then when the free banker camp then produces quotes to say, oh no, look at, in this spot, Mises is with us. He's not, all right, he's, He's saying, you know, he, he, like, for example, Mises could say something like, were it not for fiduciary media, then as the demand for money grew, as, you know, global commerce intensified and populations grew and stuff like that, then, uh, you know, there would have been severe price deflation in terms of gold, were it not for fractional reserve banking. And he could even say, and that would have been a painful thing, right? Okay. That does not at all say that the issuance of fiduciary media doesn't cause the boom-bust cycle, all right? So, again, that's, I'm going to give you a sample. Anyway, so I'll link to this, of course, at the show notes page, but Edward Fuller at the Mises Institute, or for, at Mises.org, I should say, in June of 2019, had this article called Mises on 100% Reserve Banking, and he just compiles a bunch of quotes from Mises that a lot of these I had never seen before. And so let me just give you an example. Um... So Mises, in 1952, wrote an appendix to the theory of money and credit. And then he says there, no bank must be permitted to expand the total amount of its deposits subject to check or the balance of such deposits of any individual customer, be he a private citizen or the U.S. Treasury, otherwise than by receiving cash deposits and legal tender banknotes from the public or by receiving a check payable by another domestic bank subject to the same limitations. This means a rigid 100% reserve for all future deposits. And then in a 1952 lecture, and it was collected in the book called Marxism Unmasked, um, he calls fraction reserve banking a very questionable business. And then this I went to look up just to see the context. I think this was in a Q&A, like so somebody asked a question and then Mises was given an answer. But again, this was in 1952, and he's off the cuff talking to a member of the public, I believe. And Mises says, in the future, no additional banknotes should be issued. No additional credit should be entered on a bank account subject to check unless there is 100% coverage in money. This is the 100% plan. And this is dot, 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 no more credit expansion. Okay, so again, that was in the 50s. So it's, it's crystal clear what Mises' position is throughout his scholarly career I've seen plenty of crystal clear quotes on this point from 1912, now through 1952 at least. And like I say, I have not seen a single thing that would make me think Mises waffle or that maybe elsewhere he thought differently. So again, there's the problem, the problem with this debate is there's several different things that people argue over. So one thing is, is it inherently fraudulent? And so there, you know, I have my views and I'm more sympathetic now than I was before to like Huerto de Soto and Rothbard who say, yes, it's inherently fraudulent. But that's a separate question from whether you think 
fraction reserve banking per se causes the boom-bust cycle. And on that one, I get, again, maybe Mises is wrong, but I think if you believe in Austrian business cycle theory, you should realize by its very nature, it has to do with fraction reserve banking, fiduciary media. All right. And, and that's, so my paper in the quarterly journal of Austrian economics tries to spell that out and make that case. And obviously I'll link to that as well, the show notes page. Hey everybody, let's take a break from the discussion to mention that if you like this show and you want to hear more episodes or a higher frequency of episodes, then please go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to see some of the special goodies you have there. If that's not an option for you, then uh, just share some of these episodes with people you think might like them. That also helps. Thanks, everybody. Let's get back to the show. Okay, why don't we do another economics one when it comes to the gold standard? So I used to be in favor of the government or the Fed going back on it. And, and there I was sort of taking a, sort of like how Scott Sumner, well, no, actually, never mind. I was going to say how Scott Sumner doesn't want there to be a Fed, but given that it exists, wants it to target NGDP, uh, the level of NGDP at a certain amount. But he wasn't so clear the last time I just interviewed him, whether that's actually his position, whether he wants to get rid of the central bank or not, because he's not sure that private banks would do it. So let me not use that as an example, but certainly somebody like Selgin doesn't think there should be a central bank, but then, hey, given that one exists, we can go ahead and give it advice. And so in a similar manner, I used to think that Oh, given that the government's going to be involved with money or given that the Fed exists and it's going to hold assets and announce targets for the dollar and whatever, I thought going back on gold would be a great idea. And then what's interesting is I, the, the problem is, okay, well, what, what dollar price for an ounce of gold are you going to target? You're not going to go back to $35 an ounce. You're certainly not going to go back to $20.67 an ounce, which it was before FDR, right? And so, because that would involve massive deflation. You would have to eliminate most of the dollars in existence in order to get the price of gold back down to whatever, 35 an ounce or basically $21 an ounce, right? So they'd be crazy to go back to that. So, and this is the point Mises made too. So after World War I, the major powers had all inflated. And then in the 20s, they tried to go back on gold. And Mises was saying, don't go back to the pre-war parity because and he made the analogy of it's like driving over a guy forward and then you put it in reverse and back up over him again, thinking you're going to undo the damage. And he said, no, once the inflation's done and you diluted like the British pound with respect to its gold content, then having a massive deflation to try to go back is just going to introduce further problems. Just lock in the new price and leave it at that. And so I didn't know what to do in terms of that. And I just, I forget exactly what it was. And in the book, How Privatized Banking Really Works that I did with Carlos Lara, we had a proposal for linking the dollar back to gold and it involved things like letting the Fed's holdings of mortgage-backed securities and stuff like that roll off and then replacing it with gold in order to convince the world that, you know, we're serious about this new peg. And, but the, the way we came up with whatever the target price was, it was somewhat arbitrary. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head what we did. So Mises had a much better recommendation that I discovered later where it was just to just to insist going forward that anybody who wants uh, new dollars has to present a certain amount of gold in order to get it. So that ensures going forward, all new dollars are gold backed. And, and the, you know, to figure, well, what's the ratio? 
it's just like what, you know, when you announce the reform, boom, you just lock in the market price of gold then. Now, I don't remember the exact timing. Like, do you announce it on October 1st that the gold price as of November 1st or looking back over the last three months, what was the, you know, I don't remember the exact details to that level of specificity, but Mises' point was, no, we don't have to come up with what we think the price of gold should be. Just look at right now what the market price is and lock it in. And then again, the it's it's not it's it's more that you're insisting that any future issuance of dollars in the case of the U.S. government, someone has to first give the government that much gold, and then they get the new dollars. And so that ensures going forward, all expansion of the dollar supply is backed 100%. And so to the extent that that happens over time, that, you know, still more people want more and more dollars for which they hand over the correct amount of gold, then over time, the dollar becomes more and more gold-backed, right? So it's not that Mises was recommending instantly, boom, make the dollar fully redeemable in gold because there's serious logistical problems with that. Um, so anyway, I just thought it was a, his proposal was much more elegant and made much more economic sense. Okay. Having said all that, though, I'm no longer in favor of, of any of that. So I still will defend the classical gold standards, a really cool period in global history and a nice mechanism and explain how it works because it's neat. Um, and I will defend the honor of the gold standard from scurrilous accusations that it was responsible for the Great Depression and crazy stuff like that. But in terms of am I going to be out pushing my plan to tie the dollar back to gold or we're talking about, no, because it, it would just dis get discredited, right? So let's say the Fed did tie the dollar back to gold, you know, and like I said, they let their current portfolio roll off and replaced it with gold as needed and so on to get the balance sheet back to whatever size they wanted, but to be composed of gold. The next time there was a crisis, the Fed would just abandon it, right? You, you're not going to lock its hands, tie its hands and so then once again, it would just, they would just discredit hard money. And so to me, rather than spending a lot of time professionally or rhetorically trying to get the public in favor of linking the dollar back to gold, even though that would be way better than it not being, you know, than it being fiat money, um, I, I have given up on that one. I, I don't bother doing that just because, again, I think the moment a crisis hit, they would abandon it and then that would just discredit the whole thing. So instead, I just talk about getting government out of money altogether. That's what I talk about now. Okay, a quick one where I've learned the inflation bet fiasco. So the quick history is in 2000, late 2008, early 2009, I was very concerned about what the Fed was doing with QE. And I was worried about the dollar crashing. And Brian Kaplan thought it wasn't going to happen as quickly as I worried. And so we made a bet. And then David R. Henderson wanted in on the action. So I made a similar bet with him about, I thought there was going to be double digit price inflation as gauged by the consumer price index by a certain point. And I bet them, you know, the, the, the dates were different because David Henderson thought it, it was more of a threat than Brian did. And so David, with our bet, we, it was decided earlier, right? In other words, David was only betting we wouldn't see double digit price inflation by a certain time. Whereas with Brian, I had longer for it to come true. So, and then I lost to both of them and Paul Krugman was running a victory lap saying, ah, see, Murphy, the ideologue, refuses to update his model even though it gave him erroneous predictions. You know, he's not a scientist, he's a capitalist stooge. So what's interesting about that is I didn't bet Paul Krugman, I didn't bet a Keynesian 
and actually you can choose whether to believe this or not. I wouldn't have because I know full well, like with the Paul, uh, with, with the, with the Simon Ehrlich debates or, or bet, I should say it's Paul Ehrlich, um, and Julian Simon, Paul Simon's the musician, um, you know, they famously made a bet about what would happen with resource prices, you know, because Ehrlich was concerned about population growth and Simon was much more of an optimist, right? So that's a famous chapter in free market economist lore. And so I would not have bet Paul Krugman on something that I wasn't absolutely sure about. And so here, though, I was betting friends and we were all free market guys, right? Brian and I were both ANCAPs and David's not an ANCAP, but he had just written a piece talking about fiscal austerity and how it was great when the Canadian government cut its budget in the late 90s to solve a, you know, a budget problem, how, how cutting spending was the way to go forward, right? So in terms of the debate of 2009, 2010, Kaplan and Henderson and I were all on the same page. They weren't even necessarily in favor of what the Fed was doing. They were just saying they didn't think the disastrous consequences I was worried about were going to happen as soon as I did. All right. And so <laughs> in other words, put it this way, Kaplan and Henderson won their bet. And you didn't see Paul Krugman saying, huh, maybe extremely limited government and fiscal austerity is right after all, because th these guys who held those views and their model generated predictions that came true. So, hmm, no, that's not what he did. He said, oh, because Murphy thought one thing and he's an Austrian and Keynesians would have disagreed on that particular thing. That means Keynesians are right and Austrians are wrong, even though the people I made the bet with were not Keynesians either. So anyway, that was kind of real. But my point is, what did I learn is because I had become somewhat prominent as a critic of Paul Krugman in particular, I should have been more careful that just, you know, me making a personal bet. That was the thing, like, that's also partly why I didn't even consider this is because it was just my own personal view. So yeah, I'm an economist and that informed my decision-making. But the idea that more money drives up prices, that's not a particularly Misesian insight. That's not intrinsically tied to Austrian economics to think if the government creates a bunch of money, prices are going to rise. That's standard stuff. We were just disagreeing about, or oh, there other offsetting factors and blah, 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 right? So it's like I was saying at the time, if I bet on the Super Bowl, I didn't realize the legitimacy of Bumbaverkian capital theory would have rested on that, but apparently it would have in the eyes of my critics. So yes, in retrospect, I should not have made that bet given what they did with it and given that now my Wikipedia entry, 30% of it is about <laughs> that bet. And then by the way, that it's wrong. They say stuff like Murphy bet on hyperinflation. No, I didn't. But in any event, so just be careful, kids. People are going to hold you to a higher standard if you're a minority, in this case, a believer in Austrian economics. Okay, um, the infinite banking concept, IBC. I'm going to be very brief here. When I first got into it, I got tied up in the weeds about just the mechanics of how whole life insurance works and rates of return and this and that. And, uh, oh, what's the, what's the portfolio value of having enforced life insurance? And so you can see Dave Ramsey's wrong when he does his stuff. And it's not that anything I did was wrong there, but I was losing track of the big picture. There's a reason Nelson called his book Becoming Your Own Banker. What he's trying to do is show people this is how you can free yourself from the control of other bankers being in charge of your money. Okay. And um, for whatever reason, that was really driven home to me that I was talking with uh, one of the big producers who's gone through our program. So I'm on the board of the Nelson Nash Institute and we have a training program for IBC practitioners. 
And so anyway, one of our graduates, you know, he, he and I were talking. I'm, by the way, I'm using that terminology just so you understand my relationship with the guy. It's he knew what he was doing. It's not that like I taught him IBC. Just just to be clear, I don't want to want to give that impression. But he he did go through our program, so that's the sense in which I'm saying he's a graduate of the program. Um, and he was talking about working with a client, and I'm making up numbers here to keep things you know confidential and whatever. But it, not that he violated confidential with me either, I should say. But it was like the com the the couple was plunking down twenty thousand dollars a year into. 401k type plans. And then they were also, they had a mortgage and then they had a loan on some car, you know, car loans. And, uh, and so what this practitioner show them how to do is instead of using the 20,000 a year to fund these other plans, they just started funding permanent value, you know, dividend paying whole life insurance policies. And then they would build up the cash in that and then borrow against that and then pay off the other uh, loans. And so that over the course of time, in just a few years, they had knocked out all their external debt. And then eventually even they knocked out their mortgage. And, 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 and then what ended up having is they had this large life insurance, plural, life insurance policies that in gross terms had a lot of cash surrender value, but then not that much available because they had these large policy loans that were offsetting the gross values. And so I just was sitting there thinking about what they did and doing it in reverse. And so really it's like the standard American family right now, there's almost a sense in which they're going out and borrowing money from a bank with their house or their vehicles as collateral and then using that money to invest in the stock market, right? So that's not their motivation. That's not how they ended up in that spot, but where they end up if you follow the advice of people like Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman, well, I sh that's not fair. Dave Ramsey doesn't want you to have a mortgage. I, sh I shouldn't say it. Just let's say standard investment people, if you do what they say, like, oh yeah, max out your 401k contributions from your employer and do this and that. Da, da, da. And then, oh yeah, if you need to buy a house, you go get a mortgage. And you know, the 30 year is going to be the low interest rate. This is great stuff. So would you just think about it though? Would you like I say, if you, if you started out and you had a house that was paid for and you had cars that were paid for, but you had no stock holdings, would you go to the bank and borrow money against those with, as collateral and then go invest in the stock market? A lot of people probably wouldn't, or at least they would say, whoa, let me think about that. That seems kind of risky. And yet that's where you end up anyway, doing the traditional advice. You end up with all your spare cash flow going into buying more stock, stocks, you know, getting exposed to the market and then you have outsiders who have liens against your house and your vehicles. And so that if something happened to you and you couldn't make those payments, they would come and take your stuff and kick you out of your house. And you, but what you have to show for, oh, I, I have a bunch of stock. You know, I'm, I'm heavily invested in the U.S. stock market, this real volatile asset, right? So that seems kind of crazy. So what I realized that what this, you know, graduate program was doing with this couple was freeing them from that. And especially given my views of what the Fed's been doing, I personally don't like the stock market anytime soon. Like I, I wouldn't want to be, I'm not heavily invested in the stock market at all. Um, so I, I was very comfortable like, oh yeah, I think that's great advice you're giving those people to do that. So anyway, that's just where I'm coming from on that, that I'm realizing, yeah, it's becoming your own banker. It is what IBC does is it shows you a way that you're using your own income to end up buying things and 
it's it's just it's hard to get across succinctly, but it's a way that you can have much more financial independence. So yeah, rates of return are important and you should know how those things work and how these particular contractual relationships and the mechanics of whole life insurance and how a policy loan works and all that stuff too, the stuff I've been doing in this realm. But taking a step back, what you're doing is becoming your own banker. And that's what Nelson always would stress and not, you know, saying don't get lost in the weeds. Okay, the final thing I'll talk about is I used to be an atheist, used to be a devout atheist. I thought that was a funny term. And now I'm a Bible-believing Christian. So here, let me play this excerpt from a recent podcast interview I did to tell some of the story. I really am thankful that you're here, appreciative, talking to someone like you, an economist, especially of the Austrian school. That's like on my bucket list. So, so I'm real happy about that. And I really appreciate you making the time for us. Can you tell us a little bit about your testimony as a Christian before we get started? Most of my audience are evangelical or born-again Christians, and so mm-hmm. I think they'd be very interested in that part of your of your story. Okay, sure. Um, so I'll I'll give like this sort of uh, abbreviated version, and then if you want to, you know, ask me follow up, that's certainly I'm happy to do so. So I was raised Catholic. My parents were Catholic. Um, I went to Catholic. We call it grammar school and high school. I in terms of the sacraments, I went up through what's called confirmation. But then I just, it was the church I went to, I, the way I put it is at least the younger priests, I got the sense of, from them that they thought the devil was a metaphor, right? Like, mm. they, they, you know, and, and it was mostly like, oh, like, try to be good, try to be nice to people. And so like, I, I don't feel like even they believed in the, you know, literal truth of the Bible. Um, I think the older priests did, but the younger ones, I didn't get that sense. And so I, was very, you know, I was a very good student and I got into science and I realized, you know, quote, realizing quotation marks, this stuff was all nonsense. You know, there's just fairy tales and stuff to have people try to be nice to each other. So I was actually a full-blown atheist by the time I was an undergrad in college. And I actually intended to write a refutation of Christianity because I had read a bunch of stuff like H.L. Mencken's treatise on the gods and um, I think his name is George Smith, had a book called Atheism. And I thought, oh, these guys did all right. But in Thomas Paine's Age of Reason, so he wasn't an atheist, but he was a deist, and, but he didn't like the Christian Bible. He thought it was full of contradictions and silliness. And I thought, I'm going to write the definitive refutation. So I started getting into that stuff. So I'm just showing you where I was. Sure, yeah. No, this is, then, this is very fascinating. Um, and then by, uh, let's see. So, but then I went to NYU for grad school and I had a lot of personal stuff going on and I reached a crisis point and I was, you know, I didn't go see somebody about it, but I would have been considered suicidally depressed. And, uh, and I just kind of had this epiphany and I realized like I was causing all my own problems and stuff and all this stress just flowed out of me and I had had skin problems and things. And I I just knew that these, like the skin ailments that were just going to just fix themselves. Like I I realized, Oh, it was the stress doing that. And so I was still an atheist just to be clear. But then because of that insight and me realizing how much my body like was just going to repair itself, I was like, oh, like it really is true. Like the mind body connection. Like I had thought that was kind of gobbledygook new age stuff up to that point because I was real rational. Right. So once it happened to me personally, I realized, well, this is a real thing. And so then I said, oh, so that makes more sense. There was this guy 2000 years ago walking around. He genuinely thought he was the son of God. He wasn't because we all know that's crazy. This is my mind. Right, right. And but. But then I then I thought, okay, that makes more sense rather than this all just being a myth and people getting killed for this guy that they know is a big fraud. 
I, I, I then thought, okay, given the belief structure those people had at the time, if he's going around, you know, laying hands and healing them or whatever, they could literally be healed. Because especially because like, you know, I had skin problems. I was like, oh, so leprosy is probably just a thousand times what I had. Like I, that's the way I was. Sure. And so that's, so I was piece by piece, like coming closer to like thinking, okay, I could see how things sort of like the Bible stories really did happen, but they misunderstood because they weren't scientifically trained and that, that you know, and it was, so things like that were bringing me closer. And then, um, and I, I just had a couple of experiences and things happened. And I, I kind of got to a point where I said, all right, if, if one more thing happens, one more sign, then I'll believe there's a God. And I, I know this might sound goofy to some people, but I go and stick my hands in my pockets and there was like a five or a $10 bill in there. And I know that so, so what, but, but I'm just saying like the way I was at that time, I was very anal retentive. I would not have just had spare money in my pocket. This is not how I was. Right. And, and I had said, if one more thing happened, <laughs> boom, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was almost like the bare minimum to be like, oh, you know what I mean? Like it, there wouldn't have been a burning bush. It was like, you just had just one more thing. Yeah. And so I did that and I was like stunned and, and I was full of remorse because I had spent my college years trying, a lot of my friends were Christian because I went to Hillsdale College. Okay. college, which there were a lot of, sure. you know, it wasn't a Christian school per se, but there were a lot of religious people there. And I know I was personally friendly, but I wasn't a jerk about it, but I was trying to convince, I thought I was freeing them. I would try uh -huh. to talk them uh -huh. out of their faith. Unfortunately, I wasn't successful with anybody. And so I, <laughs> and so then I said, I am so sorry because meaning, oh, wow, I, I realize now you exist. And I've been walking around trying to tell people, you know, and I heard a voice in my head say, I forgive you, you know? Oh, and wow. I know, and I know, you know, my atheist self would have explained that away and said, well, you had guilt. And so psychologically you had to hear that, you know, you heard a voice, but I'm just telling you that was not for me. I heard it in my head. And so then I was at that point, I believed in God. And then, but I still wasn't Christian per se. I was doing research on Buddhism and Hindu, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it was like, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap the story up here, but it was, it was kind of like, um, it seemed like other traditions, like they would say, okay, the way you deal with suffering is just convince yourself it's not, maybe it's not suffering. Maybe it's not a bad thing. How do we know? Like yeah, it was that yeah. kind of a like, and that just didn't make sense to me. And it was like, whereas with Jesus, it was like, yeah, bad things are going to happen, but don't worry. I've conquered the world sort of, you know what I mean? Yeah, and uh -huh. so that made more sense to me. And so I just, the more everything and I realized like, well, no, my whole value system is from the sermon on the Mount, you know, everything. And it was just, I kept resisting that last little, and so it's, I finally, then it was what, April 15th, I'm trying to think, 2002 is when I realized like, no, this, everything I need is in Jesus. And I, you know, accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And, and that's, so that, that's kind of the, the, the highlight. Wow. Well, that, that's, that's a fascinating. That's, that's very, very interesting. Okay. And I, I do want to keep these things brief. I'll probably do more of it later, but if you're just curious, like, Bob, how could you, let me just give you an example of some of the things. So for example, um, you know, in other words, given now that I have this new perspective, how do I reconcile my old views with this stuff? Because I believe me, folks, I get it. If you're a rational atheist that you would think this stuff is nutty. I understand that. But so let me try to help. So for one thing is, well, gee, the Old Testament's sick, right? God goes around just slaughtering people. How, how could the God of the Bible be a murderer? That's crazy. Okay, hang on. No matter what happens, there's a sense in which God kills you, right? No matter how you die, right? So somebody in the Old Testament that you say, oh, God killed that person. Be, you know, like the soldiers chasing the uh, Israelites out of Egypt, they got drowned. 
why would God do that? That's, that's kind of harsh. Okay, well, what if instead he didn't do that and they died at age 92 in their beds of old age? Well, God still, quote, killed them, right? Or what if they just had a heart attack from some other, you know, high cholesterol? Well, God still killed them. He could have spared them. He designed the universe such that having too much cholesterol makes you a candidate for heart disease, right? So as I'm saying, no matter how you die, ultimately, if you are a Christian who believes in the God of the Bible, you would think there's a sense in which God is ultimately, you know, you, not, this stuff gets really tricky with, you know, the interplay of Satan and stuff. And, but at the very least, God could have prevented any death that occurs. He has the power to do so, right? And so, yes, that leads to other problems. Like, why would a good God allow bad things to happen? I'm not saying this, but on the narrow question of, gee, why would God kill people with a flood or something like that? I mean, again, if, if you die from hunger, if you die because a lion gets you, if you die from a heart attack when you're age 107, all of those things are, in a sense, God allowing you to die that way or setting in motion a chain of events such that he knows that that's what's going to be the outcome. And so on that, you know, that particular question of people looking at stuff that God does in the Old Testament in particular, it's, it's, it gets kind of goofy when you realize who God is and his nature. Now, what... What's interesting though, is you say, well, then what should we do? So can we go around killing people? No, because we're not God. And if you want to know what does God think we should do as humans, guess what? He became a human and showed us. So Jesus, as a man walking the earth, didn't go around slaughtering people. He didn't hold people's heads underwater and drown them because they were sinners. No, the exact opposite. He let them butcher him. He let the sinners kill him and he turned the other cheek and then as he lay there dying, or as he hung there dying, looked up and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Okay, so yes, God is being very clear about here's how I am. The Old Testament in a sense is him telling humans, hey, this is who I am, or I am. And then in the New Testament, he becomes one of us to say, and this is how you should live now. Um, last thing I'll, I'll mention on this issue of like free will and stuff like that. I came up with an analogy that I think is pretty good in some respects, at least. Like, so yeah, so why would a good God let bad things happen? Or, you know, it says like in the Bible that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's an odd thing to say. So did God make Pharaoh sin? So I like the analogy of an author. So did J.K. Rowling make Voldemort kill Harry Potter's parents? Well, yes and no because she's the author of the story of there's a sense in which she did, but in the world of Harry Potter, no Voldemort of his own free will killed Harry. Now there are, I forget the name of the spell. There's spells in the Harry Potter universe where you can take control of somebody's mind. Like, so a bad wizard could make someone else kill somebody and they, they wouldn't have actually sinned. They wouldn't have been re morally responsible. The person who actually carried out the, the murder because they were under the control. So, so I'm saying in the world of Harry Potter, it does make sense to say, does someone have free will? Yes or no. But then to step back and say, because J.K. Rowling wrote the story, does nobody in the world of Harry Potter have free will? That doesn't make sense. Or you can answer on either level, just being clear about what you mean. So likewise, did Pharaoh choose to persecute the Israelites? Yes, he did. Is he morally responsible? Yes, he is. Is he a bad guy? Yes, he was. Did God harden his heart and make him do that? Yes, he did. Okay, so <laughs> there you go. All right, I will stop there. Thanks everybody for listening. And again, consult the show notes page, bobmurphyshow.com slash 206 
for further readings and all this material. Thanks. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.